0: You're listening to another great podcast in the Stoplight Network.
1: Hi folks and welcome to Let's Talk Photography episode 17. I'm your host Bart Buschatz. Lovely panel with me today. Um, So, this is part two of our Understanding Your Camera show where we did the first part for January. Um, So, with me back again, we have Antonio Rosario from Switch to Manual. Hi, Antonio. Hello, Bart. Thank thank you for coming back for part two of this discussion.
2: Anytime. I I enjoy so much being part of this discussion, this podcast.
1: It's always always nice to have you, and uh, Thank I, you. I like actually listening into your show. Um, you, you guys are really certain to find your feet on um, Switch to Manual.
2: Oh, thanks. Yeah, we're we're trying, and you guys have uh, been the uh, inspiration. So good.
1: Uh, also yeah. with us is Mark Polly from um, Twin Lakes Images. Hi, Mark. Hi, Bart. <laughs> How are you? I, I know. I was going to say, apart right. <laughs> from the sinus infection and some other stuff going on, absolutely fine. <laughs> Yeah, there we go. I, it it just it, the the how are you
0: just slipped right out, and then I realized he doesn't want to answer that question. He's not doing well at all.
1: Well, actually, it, it's a, it's a good segue for me to say apologies. The show was late, but uh, my sinuses were non cooperative last weekend.
3: Hey, but let's give uh, let's give Patreon a little plug here because you know you don't get paid if no show comes out. The show must go on, right? Well, also because I
1: promised listeners that I'd never do three in one month, and I was like, okay, I'm running out of February. We have to get a show done. <laughs> So anyway, also the other voice you hear there is Alison Sheridan from the Nocella cast. Hi, Alison. She snuck in at the last minute. Well, actually, thank you for uh, volunteering to jump in at the last minute. Much
3: appreciated. Sure. Well, I think you guys could have carried on alone, but uh, I just love being on. So I snuck in.
1: Well, I, I, you know, I, I think four is the ideal number. You know, we, we we could have made do with three, but I think I think four is just a nice size of a panel.
2: Did you card her before she came in? Did
1: you make like sure? card her? What, yeah. are you, pensioners aren't allowed or something? Or? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, sorry, you're too old. Oh, man. That it burns. Oh, it me. burns. Um, actually, listeners really got stuck into last month's show. Um, so a reminder that we have a Google Plus group where you can post stuff. And um, you can also leave feedback at lestestalk.ie. Uh, I would let of-
3: someone find that, Bart. That Google Plus community.
1: If you go to let's talk.ie, there's a link to it. It's probably the easiest because I've never quite figured out Google links. <laughs>
3: there you go. Um,
1: or search for Let's Talk or Let's Talk Let's Talk Podcast, I think is what if you search for it, you'll find it too. Um so I thought we'd start by refocusing on focus. Sorry for the pun. Um which actually seemed to really get people going, this whole focus discussion. Um, so we got two sort of groups of feedback. First we have a nice analogy from one listener. And then some specifics on how different makes of camera treat it, because I don't think we, we spent much time looking at Canon or Olympus last time. So we have two nice bits of feedback on that. And because I hate reading out loud, I'm going to ask Alison to please read an
3: email sent in by listener Andy. All right, let's go here. Andy says, the whole autofocus discussion is something which I still ponder and have not come to final conclusions on. But it occurred to me as I was thinking about it, but photograp- photographing trains might provide a perfect set of scenarios where it would be very easy for everyone to imagine the amount of motion involved. Take the following scenarios, for example. I love that he used trains. as yeah, so He
1: knows me <laughs> so well.
3: Okay, so the first scenario is photographer is standing on the station platform next to the tracks and the train is traveling on. The train is coming almost straight on at you at a good speed. The second one is photographer is standing at one end of a large field. The train tracks run along the opposite end of the large field. The train will be moving fast from the photographer's left to the photographer's right. The third one is, you're at a railroad museum photographing a train, which will not move no matter what happens, we hope. (laughs) (laughs) The photographer may walk around to get different angles, but you have as long as you want to set up each shot. It seems like most autofocus situations could be described as similar to one of these. Of course, it also occurs to me that all discussions of photographic technique should be in terms of photographing trains, since that's obviously what cameras are (laughs) invented to do. I'm
1: trying to think which came first, the train or the camera. (laughs) (laughs)
3: On a more general note, this podcast covered content which I thought I had completely mastered. It was rather useful to me to discover that I had not mastered it quite as completely as I thought. Though I do understand it quite well, I did pick up a few useful bits, which is excellent. Thanks for the great show. Be well, Andy.
1: So thank you, Andy. And as I say, if anyone else has any feedback, please do send it on in. So of course, trains is perfect, right? (laughs) (laughs) So if you're standing on the platform with the train shooting towards you, single servo would be terribly bad because you'd focus once, press the rest of the way down on the shutter, and then fire with the train definitely out of focus.
3: You're pretty much guaranteed to be wrong.
1: Yeah, because you're not going to be instant getting from focus to shoot. So you definitely, in that case, you want your um, continuous servo. So that's definitely one of those situations. If the train is running parallel to you, then this distance isn't really changing. So you could probably get away with single focus in that case. And I think pretty much anything you'd like will work in the museum if you have enough light.
2: <laughs> Sorry, I'm groaning here for a second. Okay. Uh, um, the, the single servo when the train's coming at you, yes, that makes sense. There is an issue a little bit with single servo when you're rotating the camera on an angle. Like if the, mm-hmm. if the train is on the opposite side of the field because um, the fo- the distance, like if you think like a triangle, mm-hmm. right? So your your camera is at one point of the triangle. The first part where you focus is at say the left corner of the triangle, mm-hmm. and then as you sweep and you go to the right corner of the triangle, the distance is actually changing. Because I'm not good at this sort of. Well, I'm without... good at
3: geometry, so I see what you're saying. Right? But the if it's far enough away, that doesn't matter. Yeah, the right, bigger the, the, the field, the less
2: is a it matters. Distance. Than the angle,
1: right? Yeah. Yeah, because no, yeah, if, you, if, you, if you imagine sort of swinging in the edge of the field, it will stick right. slightly further out than where right. a train would be running.
2: Right. No, so that depends on how far the train is away. If it's enough of a distance, you might not notice the difference in focus. Yeah. But if it's closer, that difference in focus will actually, you'll actually see a difference. It's part of the reason why I've heard that you ought not to tap down on your focus to lock it and then rotate your camera to then reframe. Yeah. Because the point where you tap mm-hmm. down is going to be a different point of focus than when you rotate the camera to, refo- to yeah. reframe.
1: Now, so, well, I would sort of imagine the scenario would be if I was standing at the end of that field, I wouldn't be panning with the train. So I would I would probably have half pressed on something at the line side and then just wait for the train to be in the right place and then fire.
3: But you could get multiple shots by rotating, right? Yeah, well, this is my railway
1: experience coming in. Generally speaking, you pick your shot and you take it and that way you get it perfect because the thing, they don't Uh respond when you say, oh, could you go back and do that again, please? (laughs) 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 They're pretty stubborn about that.
2: Yeah, but I'm also taking the train scenario and sort of reinterpreting it as if maybe your child is running down the field with their soccer ball and you're trying to follow them and focus – Yes. Um, while you're sort of, you know, you grab them to the left, and you grab them to the middle, and you grab them to the right. So that's that's kind of, you know, the yeah. scenario that I'm thinking of, where where it would it could be an issue.
1: Yeah. I particularly at railway photography. I'm very, I'm very much of the mind that you pick the shot exactly right, you frame you frame it exactly right, you have already pre focused, and then you just wait for the train to arrive, and then boom.
3: Well, I think this is where the the train analogy breaks down. If that's mm. not blasphemy to say. No, I know. Uh, that it's but- not everything a camera can do. <laughs> But if I look at, uh, at uh, Mark photographing his grandson, we don't know where his grandson's going to go we, know right. we don't know it's going to go left to right at a specific distance.
0: Right. I was going to say the same thing sort of. I mean if you, if you have a train track and you know that you're that you are perpendicular that you guys helped me with geometry perpendicular, perpendicular to it so I know it's going to go left and right Correct. and I know that it's not it's it's not going to change the plane. That's one thing, but for for instance if I'm shooting my grandson or I was actually thinking if I'm out in the field uh you know shooting an eagle like I would and it and it takes off, I don't I don't know which direction it's going to go, if it's going to come at me, if it's going to go left and right, if it's going to move away. So, uh, continuous shot or auto, the auto continuous is uh, the way I would be going there. Yeah. It it seems like, for me, it's going to be a pretty limited situation where I actually know that it's going to stay on the the same plane.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I think that's probably why the default on a lot of these cameras is to automatically choose between single or continuous servo say that again so on the Nikon you have the three modes where it's continuous servo, single servo or automatically decide which to do Right. and if you just you know, take the camera out of the box it will be in that decide what to do based on the scenario so basically the camera will autofocus, figure out what's going on in the world and then decide how it should behave for the remainder of that shot
0: Yes, in hmm. Canon, it in Canon, it's AI focus. It's going to choose between the continuous focus or the one shot focus, depending on uh, depending on the situation that it thinks you're in.
1: Yeah, and that seems like a same default, I guess. But I guess if you really know what you want, you should take control. Well, well I would What's think. What's good about it, uh, this
3: discussion is that it makes us think about it because I tend to just I don't know. It's in one of those modes. I know it's not manual. So it's probably right, and I, and I haven't been thinking about it so much, and now I'm going to think about it more to go. Okay, which of the train scenarios am I in, or am I in a grandson mode? Right. Well,
0: and I, but I, but I, and I think if you are in the situation, the the train in the museum, the hmm. product shooting, what the, you know, it's not going to move, um, and you really have an opportunity to set everything up. Nothing's going to move. Then, then the one the. The, the one shot is maybe your actually your better way because then you know it's not going to try to fluctuate. It's not going to think too much. It's going to focus on the focus point that you're setting, and it's not going to fluctuate.
2: Yeah, well, I almost yep. I almost uh, lobbied to say when you're in a situation like that, you shoot uh, manual focus
0: or manual focus, right? Because That's
2: why not? You'll have that. a lot more. You'll you'll probably be a lot less frustrated than and it'll probably take a lot yeah. less energy than setting the focus point and having the camera focus and then moving the camera a little because it's not quite like if you just take. Mm-hmm shut the autofocus off and you're rotating the lens yourself you're going to have a, probably a less frustrating time than well, letting certain, the camera decide what things that don't
1: comes into play because hmm? at that stage you can stick it you can flip up the mirror zoom right in and really see what's going on and just finesse that focus perfectly if, if i'm doing particularly astrophotography stuff or whatever at night on, on a tripod it's it's click into manual and i'll take control please
3: you know how in in uh, when you go to the eye doctor, they I don't know about your eye doctor, but my eye doctor puts a, a a gizmo up to my head and it shoots some light and finds a, a good focal point for my eyes and it sort of gives them a starting point for the is this better or worse, better or worse, better or worse thing. So they get me kind of in range and yeah. then they do the little flippy things until they get it perfect. My uh, my Olympus camera has a, a mode uh, that is um, it's continuous servo plus manual, so you hit it. To, uh, to get get it to get that first shot, you know, get it close. And then it immediately, if you grab the focus ring, you can focus it manually beyond that. And that's kind of a neat, which, by the way, I only figured out about a week ago when Bart asked me, so what focus mode were you in, Allison? <laughs> oh, that's does, what that thing does. That's does really that, cool. And does that have, um,
0: shoot, I can't, uh, I can't think of the term that they're using, fo- uh, focus... peaking. Yes, they're focus peaking. Where where it kind of on our DSLRs, it gives us the blinkies for the uh, when you're going to blow out a highlight or something. Does that give you the focus peaking so that you know uh, when you're out of focus?
3: I haven't seen that. I know there there's two different ways to focus with the the mirrorless cameras, and and maybe this applies to DSLRs. There's peaking. There's the peaking thing, and then there's the contrast. Is that it? for the edge detection is that what you're talking about i think i think so yeah i think that's what it's doing uh, so i d- um, don't think mine has the peaking thing Antonio. what i remember reading
1: that's unusual because i thought most of the, the the olympuses did that cool thing where it sort of sh- literally you can see on the back of the display it highlights the bits that are in focus so that you can you know by without having to peer in great detail at your screen see what is it isn't sharp Here's Bart and I that have never used one telling you how they work. A friend of mine has one and just adores... uh, Like, I have a good friend who who shoots Olympus and he just adores showing me all of the things his camera can do that mine can't. So I think that
3: (laughs) maybe the more expensive ones do. I don't think that the... I have the uh, EM10. I don't think... uh, Oh, the EM10, yeah. I don't think it does have that. I'm pretty sure it does not. What it does do, though, when you start to go into manual focus is it zooms it up like five times. Uh-huh. So you can, so you get a really, really good close-up of the edge to catch it. So visually, you have an indication uh, that's a lot better than just looking through the lens.
1: And, and does that happen in the viewfinder as well? Since the viewfinder is, yes. artificial for want of a better term. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah, yeah. In the viewfinder, you see it. In fact, that's how I figured out I was in a weird mode. I was like, "Why does it keep zooming up like that? Stop it!"
1: Ah,
2: <laughs> on my uh, my Fuji X one hundred, there's also um, and this is a throwback to. Old time cameras, but there's a split field focus in there. Oh,
3: I loved that on my so on my old 700.
2: Yeah, my old uh, Pentax camera. You just used to um, match two images. It would split the image yeah um, in half, and then you just when you matched it, it was in focus. Well, Fuji's got a digital version of oh, that, nice, uh, and it and it can be used in both the optical and electronic viewfinder. Oh, so. Um, and you can enlarge it as well, Allison, like you were talking about. It actually enlarges, and then you can you match the two um, images, and when they match up, you're, you're in focus. But I wanted to add about the peaking. The peaking is a really nice feature, and it's, it's, it's a layover from video cameras. Uh, and I work in a television studio, and we have black-and-white monitors that we use for the, um, for the television cameras. And we have a peaking focus on that. And what's really great about that is I don't have to have my glasses on uh, in order to use the focus peaking. Um, right, because can for the, I can see the contrast um, very easily. So, you know, if you have to wear glasses and they get in the way of your viewfinder, you can, uh, you know, when you're viewing through the camera, if you have focus peaking in your camera, it's really easy to take your glasses off and just be able to focus the um, uh, focus with focus peaking. Cool. Yeah, it is yeah, very cool. The,
1: the, the split prism was. I mean, I used to be. You know, when I was shooting an actual SLR with film in it and stuff, I didn't have autofocus of any sort. It was all done by hand, and that prism made it so easy to do. And I remember the single most disappointing thing about going digital was losing that prism.
2: Uh-huh. Yeah, I agree. Yeah.
1: So this is not the Olympus, uh, the Olympus
0: uh, podcast, but Allison, I'm looking at the manual of your. The you said <laughs> the EM10, the EM10, is that right? Yeah. Oh, it says there is focus peaking. You need to you need to go into the custom menu and uh, I'll give you directions offline, but I'm
3: actually it, watching it, a video it, right now that it, says the same says thing. It says it says you have it. <laughs> Multi manual focus. Yeah, you know, that's the thing. There are about 175 menu choices inside this camera and I have not yet read all of them. Oh, but Allison, you've had it for more than a week. <laughs> I have. I by the way, I'm a member of a a really uh, narrow Google Plus community. It's Olympus Camera Shooters in Australia. And I'm there not sure gone. how I got in. <laughs> I'm not sure I got in, but the guy Ananda Sims that runs it is just he's just nuts about these cameras and he posts just all these links to how to figure each of these things out. So I'm just waiting for him to spoon-feed me each one. Cool.
1: Um so the second type of feedback we got was from people basically says, so we did a pretty good job of describing Nikon because we happened to be a very Nikon panel last time. Uh, so we got some people replying on Google Plus with the different cameras' point of view. So, Alison, do you want to read out Stephen Getz's first? And then, um, was it Alistair? Yeah, Alistair Jenks then. Yeah, Alistair.
3: Okay, yeah, Stephen's going to bring in the Canon angle. Here he says, To help the autofocus mode discussions, I thought I'd share how my Canon's my Canon camera's autofocus settings work. I use a Canon 7D, so it has uh, 19 autofocus points, all cross-type, and an extra sensitive center point when used with an f2.8 or faster lens. I have my camera set to use back button focus, so I use a separate button, autofocus start, on my camera to start autofocus. My shutter button does not start focus on a half-press. It only starts the light meter on a half-press.
1: Do you want to pause there, actually?
3: Because yeah. This, <laughs> what? Yeah.
1: This is a really common thing a lot of pro, uh, pro photographers do. So you know the way on the back of the camera there's these buttons that usually sit round about where your thumb naturally rests and that most of us never use, or, well, mm-hmm. some of us never use? You can actually program Nikons or Canons to use that button as a half press. And mm. so you can hold that down and the camera will focus and then let go and it will stop autofocusing. So lock in that focus by you not pressing the button. And then you can worry about everything else and none of the focus isn't going to be messed around with and then fire when you're ready. Some people absolutely swear by it. It's sort of splitting the act of taking the photo into two distinct mental parts. I'm going to focus, now I'm going to shoot.
2: Yeah, I've, I've set up, <clears throat> I read an article and talked about, hey, this is a great way to try it you do it at night. And I did it. And my muscle memory, which has been active for as long as I've been shooting with an autofocus camera, went to hell. <laughs> um, I, for the life of me, could not remember that the back, back button was to focus with, and I did it just prior to not a job, but me and Tom and a friend we went out to shoot some wildlife, and I'm shooting and I'm like, why isn't this thing focusing? Why is? It? <laughs> I totally forgot it was the back button. Yeah. So it's one of those things that uh, you know if you've been doing autofocus photography a while, it's really hard to get used to. Um. But I can see—I certainly see the advantages of it because once you lock and focus, you're not doing that half press anymore, and it's—I um, think it's a much more freeing thing. But it's one, don't do it before a job.
0: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so well, I, I did. I did the same thing as Antonio. I gave it a try. Everybody said, "Oh, this is this is the greatest thing ever." Uh, I read the instructions on how to set it up. I did it, and and. Now I call that my out-of-focus period. You know how artists have, <laughs> art, artists have different periods of their lives, you know, impressionist or realist or that's my – I have a whole series, you know, about a month and a half worth of pictures that I couldn't get focused. So I, I quit doing it. I, I, I couldn't get my brain around
1: it. I sometimes do the opposite because you have – if you have the camera set au naturel, right? that's sort of the quote-unquote normal way. There is that button at the back still, which then you can then use to lock while you press. So it's sort of the inverse of how, of how uh, Stephen is describing it. And I do that sometimes. So I'll get everything set up just the way I want, and then I'll hold down that button until I'm done with the shot and then let go. Because I find I don't have to do that very often, so I find it's easier to do it where I have to actively hold focus instead of actively remember to get focus, if that makes any sense. Mm, yeah. So it's AFEL lock or something it'll be called. And that's what that does.
3: You know, it, to me, it sounds like, and, and can you chew gum at the same time? There, yeah. There's no way I could do anything <laughs> what you guys are talking about.
1: Well, no, I think about it, right? So you, you have your shot lined up. I usually do this actually for railway photography when I'm worried about stuff changing. And so I'll get everything just right. And then as soon as everything's ready, I've half pressed, everything is just the way I want it. I will then just move my thumb a tiny bit and hold that AFEL button. And then I know that nothing else is going to change. And then when everything is perfect, I'll hit fire.
0: I mean, I, I think that, I, just to, to wrap up, because it doesn't sound like any of us are, are advocates of how to do it, but I, I I will say, I mean, the the articles that I read, I know that some people swear by it. I know that it fits some situations or it fits the way some people shoot. Um, if you didn't know you could do it, um, you know, try it out on your camera, see if it helps you. But uh, like Antonio, I just couldn't make it work. So, But that doesn't mean it's a bad thing to try. It just means it didn't work for me.
3: So. Maybe you guys are too old, too. Uh, really. Maybe. <laughs> Should we keep going after? Yes, it? yes. yes really. On, on pause, uh, Stephen. <laughs> you guys did start it. Anyway, uh, let's see. So he goes on to say, in single shot, single point focus on whatever you put the point on. Single spot... Okay, that was single point. So single point focus on whatever you put the point on. Single spot, that single point with a smaller point to autofocus from... Autofocus point expansion works like single point, but we use information from the four points surrounding the single, the selected single point. Zone, you can choose between five different zones, left, right, center, upper uh, center, or lower center, and it will focus on the closest subjects in the selected zone. So that's like four different modes he can hmm. do within single shot. Then he's got AI servo. And uh, let's see if I can go through each of those. First is single point and single spot. It'll continue to focus on what what is under the select autofocus point. Then he's got autofocus expansion. It'll keep focusing on whatever is under the chosen autofocus point, but it'll use info from the surrounding point to achieve focus in case the subject slips off the selected point. It's getting complicated, you guys. Thank goodness I had to read this. All getting points, <laughs> All points, this is the most interesting mode in AI Servo. You choose a point to start with. Then, for example, you put your footballer on the starting point. Hold down the autofocus start button, and the camera will lock onto the subject and follow it all across uh, all of the points. There are settings in the menu system to change how sticky this subject lock is. Okay. So, yeah, no, I've heard
1: is, bird photographers swear by that mode because basically you acquire the bird like you're a homing missile or something, and then as long as it doesn't move too quickly, the, the the autofocus will sort of move follow the bird through the frame as you're trying to get a perfect shot.
3: I think the the D5100 has that the Nikon.
1: Yeah, I, never, uh, yeah, I remember it does. I just having that.
3: Never bothered using it. <laughs> I never figured out how to use it. And finally zone, it will maintain focus on the closest subject in the selected zone, left right center, upper center, lower center. Wow,
2: there's so much to learn with these. There cameras. are novels, novels uh, written about. Um, it,
1: it has to be the single most complicated feature in all of our cameras. It's yeah,
2: partially why I like to go back to manual. I know it's not perfect, but yeah. like the, the muscle man- memory that I have is a little bit better than you know the autofocus sometimes and. Um, I, I sometimes when I when I open a book like a manual like oh the mastering the Nikon D7100 or whatever and they have chapters devoted to these autofocus things I just cross my eyes I'm like I, I don't yeah. want to spend all this time learning and trying to remember all this stuff but what what I want to add to the you know to the audience in the world it's like it's like photoshop you know you don't need to learn every aspect of photoshop you really just need to learn the parts that you need to get things done. And I always think about these autofocuses in the same way. Like if I'm shooting sports or something that I require to know all these little different factors about, you know, where the camera's going to focus, I'm going to learn that a lot, but I don't think it's necessary that you learn every aspect of your autofocus on your camera unless you need it because it's this kind of stuff. It makes my eyes cross. And I'm, I've been doing this for years.
3: I'm going to uh, argue with you a little bit though, Antonio. And, and that, <laughs> I know you don't expect that. Um, I am the kind of person that does exactly what you just said. I get Photoshop. I learn how to do A, B, and C because that's what I want to do today, and I don't read no stinking manual. And I'm actually doing a lot of things way harder than if I just learned how to use more of the features. So I think that's a good way to start, but it's also good to challenge yourself to say, okay, today I'm going to learn this mode, and then maybe tomorrow I'm going to learn another mode, but I'm going to learn everything I can about what single shot means and and i think that's better to start doing that because you're going to lose the advantage of some of these cooler features
2: yeah it's a great argument and what i what i will also add to that is that um often i see some of my clients and students get so cross-eyed and frustrated that they just put the camera down or put the program yeah. down is and they- like i always think yeah you know learn this little bit and then when you need to go to this other bit like you you're shooting trains or you're shooting butterflies but you now you're going to shoot soccer that then is a good time to try to learn the features of the camera. But I, I get the sense that sometimes people want to learn. Like if I can't learn it all right now, I'm not going to do it at all. We'll learn anything?
1: Yeah, well, I think so, you need to have like a peripheral vision around the stuff you use all the time. So yeah. you don't need to know how it does the fancy 3D tracking, but you just need to know that it does do it, so that when you do need it, you know it's there to go learn. Yeah.
2: So. I agree. Just, um, I just I find it very. Very, very complex. And I was going to add, a long time ago, Canon had a camera that would focus, depending on where your eye pointed inside the yeah. viewfinder. Do you guys oh, remember that, geez. anybody?
1: That's a terrible idea because I'm looking then at what the exposure and all those things are on the bottom of my viewfinder.
2: <laughs> well, forget that. This was using technology, I think, that was based from American military that had somehow got you know, passed along. But it was eye tracking. It tracked the motion mm. of your eye the viewfinder and so if you look to the left it focused there and I would love to have that technology back because I look through the viewfinder all the time and I would like to say okay I'm looking there I'm looking there I'm looking there and, and it would go
1: that would be great I, I play I, I, a relation of mine had a camera that did that and thought it was the greatest thing since slice bread and I played with it and I wanted to kill it <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm always it looking off. around to make sure everything is framed just the way I want and the thing is like oh you're focusing over there now oh no you're over there now oh you're over here now it's, well but,
2: yeah it's, it's, but in those cases, you should be using manual focus anyway. So. I
1: single sp- Give me a spot. I'll put it where I want, and I'll be in charge. That's my theory. But I don't do soccer or any of these kind of mad moving things. Anyway, <laughs> the Canon description sounded quite complex, but Al- Alistair Jenks also chimed in with Pentax. And I have to say, it sounds way simpler.
3: or uh, possibly just a simpler description. We'll hear what he has to say here. Pentax focusing is much simpler than what I heard uh, described on the podcast. One switch selects manual, single, or continuous. One selects center, select, or auto. Center fixes focusing on the most sensitive spot in the center of the frame. Select allows me to select any one of the 11 focus points. Auto lets the camera use all of those points as it sees fit. I'm not aware of what algorithm it uses, but I have no control over it. That's it. In normal use, I use the center position on single. One case when I change is catching a bird in flight where I use continuous auto because getting the bird in the frame is challenging enough without worrying about getting it in the center. That's it. Yeah. Or maybe
1: that's actually better than all these magic modes. Maybe. I get yeah. It all depends on what you do for a living, right? If you're that soccer journalist, you're probably really happy that the, the Canons and the Nikons have these mad cool modes.
3: So I haven't actually described what the five modes are in the Olympus just for yeah. to completeness. Uh, I have single autofocus, which I assume is single servo, then continuous autofocus, continuous servo, manual focus. Then the one I was talking about, single autofocus plus manual focus, that's like you get it close and then you adjust it manual, and continuous autofocus... But it says "tr" under tracking. That's probably Maybe that's the bird one.
0: That's yeah. probably like the automatic autofocus uh, on can- on well, on, let's see on on Canon, it's called AI focus. On Nikon, it's AFA, where right. it switches between.
1: Well, no, single- actually, Mark, I think I think the tracking is actually equivalent to the 3D one in Nikon. Land oh, okay. And the, yeah, the okay. fancy tracking one in Canon Land, where basically okay. whatever is moving is assumed to be it, and it just. Keeps the focus on the moving thing. Oh, okay.
3: You know, I was about to say something and then argue with myself about it. One of the things that bugged the uh, crud out of me on my Nikon was they wouldn't actually describe things. They would show you a little picture. But I was thinking right here, it's like, why don't you just show me a bird going across the sky? That's what I want for that last button, right? That's what that one is. But I used to hate those because I'd sit there going... So, wait a minute, this one's got a duck, but that one's got a dish. What's a, <laughs> what is a dish doing? That, you know, it's just these funny little pictures that don't, you know, it's a little kid, but then not running. Am I supposed to figure something out from that?
1: Some of those pictures in the Nikon stuff are really clever. And some of them, you just know they were scratching their heads going, how how can we explain this in a picture? I'll put a plate in there. I don't know.
2: <laughs> um, and just to add that some of these, at least on Nikon, and I'm mm-hmm. sure it is with other Cameras like Canon, uh, the higher end DSLRs, not all focusing um, systems work on all lenses. Oh, like older lenses don't have some of the capabilities that the newer lenses do. So you can't use like a 3D tracking, and so the the lenses come make this a little bit more complex. Maybe some of the the mirrorless cameras, the newer cameras, maybe Olympus um, and the Fujis, they're all sort of tied in, and they don't really have legacy lenses. So they're not going to run into those problems, but Canon and, and Nikon certainly will because a lot of people have a lot of investment in old glass, yeah. and you, you keep the old lenses, but you keep buying the new bodies, and they don't understand why their the autofocus things that are coming up with the new bodies are not working is because well they don't work with the older lenses. So yeah, something to keep in mind when you're when you're going to purchase something.
1: Definitely, I, I got stung by that very very early on. Um, because particularly with Nikon, you have some Nikon bodies have a focusing motor in the body and some don't. And so if you mm-hmm. have one that doesn't, you have to buy a lens with a motor in it or it right an out half minute. And I got that wrong. And I ended up with a very I
3: remember lens. the day you got that, Bart. Was that was crazy. not a happy day.
1: No. And I know I need, was it,
3: uh, I used AFS. to know what I needed.
1: AFS. AFS, that was it, yeah.
3: Right. Anyway... <laughs> I, 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 bought, I happened to have bought the AFS when he bought the non-AFS and that's how we figured out why was mine working and his wasn't.
1: Also why mine was so much cheaper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Anyway, uh, that's probably enough on the focus. We should probably move on to the other things that we, we should be doing to, you know, take control of our cameras. So I think the other one that people get themselves into terrible trouble with is this magic thing called white balance. And I have never managed to find an analogy to make it work perfectly. Antonio, since you do this sort of switching to manual thing, like, you know, seriously, can you have a go?
2: Oh, well, we just skipped the white balance entire
1: <laughs> What? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Actually, shoot black and white. Problem well, gone. Good no. day.
2: <laughs> white, You know, the, the thing we equate white balance to is the, the, the analogy that I have is when you used to go choose your films because mm. you would go and pick a film. For those of us who remember film, there was daylight film and there was indoor film. That's basically what white balance is, is, is picking a, a, a film that would balance its color with the light that you're going to shoot in. And indoor light is really a different color than outdoor light, so you'd want to choose a film that was balanced for those lighting situations. And if you unfortunately took your indoor film and you shot it outdoors, the colors would get all wacky and vice versa. So now we have white balance, which is, which again is... Is taken from the video world um, because video cameras uh, always have been able to magically mm. um, balance out the where they're shooting, what kind of lights they're shooting under, and so that everything would be the colors would be represented correctly. so if you were indoors, the camera could sense that and balance itself out so your whites looked white and not blue or green. And when you're outdoors, the camera would know that and it would adjust itself. So digital cameras, DSLRs and all of our digital cameras now, we can, we can switch white balance. Um, what do you want me to say
1: about Ultimately, that? <laughs> it's because the human brain is too clever by half, right? Uh,
2: by very much, yeah. We've yeah, because in... if you
1: had a, like a measuring device and you went outside with a piece of white paper and measured the actual color that white paper looked, it wouldn't be white because the sun isn't perfectly white. So the white isn't actually white. And then you take the same sheet of paper inside under your tungsten light and you measure it again, and now it's a horrible blue colour. And then you take the same piece of paper and walk into another room with an incandescent light, and it's a different colour. And then you go out at sunset, and it's another colour. And you go out on a cloudy day, and it's a different colour again. And our brains just go, yeah, well, white's white, so I'm just going to magic in my head make the person see the colour correct, even though the actual physics is saying that it's a different colour in all these situations. And if we don't, if we sort of scientifically just take it as a fact that this frequency of light should be this colour... We get oompa loompas and blue people <laughs> and Smurfs and things. So, I'll chime in on why
0: this is important or when this is important. It's really, isn't it, mostly important if you're going to be shooting JPEG? Because if you're going to shoot RAW, you're going to be able to fix this pretty easily and not yeah. worry yeah. about it. But but if you're but if you're shooting JPEG, you should know ahead you you know there, there's a button on our camera where we can tell it what the white balance is going to be and if you're going to shoot jpeg you really should pay attention to the button on the camera because you're going to have a lot less ability to fix it but if you're shooting raw you're going to be able to fix it almost no matter what you're shooting
2: right i i fall into the camp of you know you know there's that 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 meme that goes around with batman slapping robin and there's one that says, Robin says, well, fix it in post. And Batman knows, slaps him and says, no, fix it now. Um, yeah, I... <laughs> I'm in the department of do it right when you can. Um, so, yeah, Mark, you can. it does make a difference if we're shooting RAW or JPEG. And you can fix it later. But I always think that it's probably something that you should always be aware of as you're shooting. And if you screw it up, for some reason, yes, you can fix it later in post if you're shooting RAW. You have a much harder time. Uh, if not, most impossible time to try to fix it when you're shooting JPEGs. To to
1: completely misuse a terrible political metaphor, don't use the safety net as a hammock. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Wait, so, let, let, me, let me stop you guys for a second because um, I imagine that more than one person in the audience is saying, do you remember the, the episode where you guys spent about seven hours al- al- answering Allison's question about using a, a, a gray card? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So we probably don't want to rehash all of that, but the ending conclusion of that was, or you can just fix it in post. Which is what I took to heart, stopped listening to you guys talk about using that gray card, and I just, the, one of the well, first things I do is I click that little eyedropper, I go, there's some white, and it fixes it. Well,
1: the little eyedropper is great, right? Because the little eyedropper takes the problem, away. Right? Because if you, if you say, I'll fix it in post, great. You then come home with a picture that looks wrong, and you have two sliders, and you've got to find the perfect point of those two sliders, which is an awful lot of possibilities with two sliders. Where that it looks, never works. It, where it looks right. So you need some sort of help. And so, if you happen to have something that's that's a neutral color in shot, and you take the eyedropper and you drop it on, then the computer can do the math and figure it out for you. But if you're in a place where there is nothing naturally color-free, you have to either get it right or use those horrible sliders and spend like ages trying to get it right, or you bring your own bit of neutral color with you in the form of these white cards or these uh, gray cards. Take a picture with the gray card, stick it in your pocket until the light changes you now have a perfectly good measurement and so I would go into aperture, so I would basically take the card, take a picture of it, then do whatever I'm doing and then when I get home I would go into aperture, open the picture of the card, put the eyedropper on the card, and then say lift the adjustment and stamp on all the other images, and then I'm done. Which I guess is fixing it in post without too much stress. But if you're in a situation where sometimes it's cloudy, sometimes it's sunny, you're moving going from indoors to outdoors, you can't really do that because you'll come home with, you know, twenty pictures of gray cards and twenty pictures.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and I'm I'm gonna think though that there's a lot of people in our audience who are not shooting raw necessarily. Yeah. Um
0: Well, and and that I guess I'll revise my remarks. It's more important if you're shooting JPEG because you have less ability to fix it in post.
1: Right. Yeah, I mean you when you're wrong- shooting you when you're wrong.
2: shooting JPEG, it's almost like you're shooting in the film days. Like all your adjustments are baked into that picture. Uh, and it's very hard to unscramble those eggs later um, when you're trying to fix it in post if you're shooting JPEG. So if you're shooting raw, you're just – you know the, ingre- the raw ingredients are still there. So you can make whatever you want when you get home.
1: The, the way to think about it is that like why is a JPEG smaller than a raw? Because a JPEG only contains the information that was used in the final product and all the other information that was picked up by the camera is thrown away. A RAW is called a RAW because it throws nothing away. And so if you realize that there was a mistake made, a lot of the time you can simply reprocess the RAW with a different white balance and hey presto, you've managed to recover it. But with the JPEG, the other stuff was just put in the bin or into yes. the digital you know, vanishing or whatever.
2: So speaking as one of the old guys <laughs> and having been around since digital photography began, um, I mean, I often shoot a lot auto white balance on some of my newer cameras cause it's gotten a lot better. Um, mm-hmm. having the camera pick the white balance. I mean, there are tricky situations where it doesn't get it, especially a lot of these cameras have problems with, um, incandescent lights indoors and especially the new compact fluorescent bulbs and the, the new LED bulbs that are coming out, the the those throw the auto white balance into kind of a hissy fit. But generally, like outdoors or in a lot of situations, I find that auto white balance on newer cameras is doing a much better job as a starting point for for white balance. And you know, I'm shooting a lot more JPEGs now, and I'm I'm getting kind of happy with it. But there's those times when I have to do manual adjustments to it when I'm in weird lighting.
0: So An- Antonio said something I you you just said something in your in what what you were talking about that led me to the a question that I wanted to ask so I'm going to go ahead mm-hmm. and stick it in here so are uh, the the white balance on our cameras give us the situations and even little pictures so that we can figure out the situation like the sun or a light bulb or whatever and um where does LED fall in that it's not <laughs> it, so it's because it's not tungsten, right? And, I, and, I'm, and I'm sorry, I'm not an s- engineer or a scientist. One of you guys can help me. Yeah, it's not the same as what the light bulb setting is on most cameras, right? Because it's assuming, I think, a, a warmer color.
1: Wait, that's well, um, on the LED bulb, Mark, because if does, you buy yeah. an LED bulb, it yeah. will tell you its color temperature. And you'll pay more to have a whiter color temperature. So you can't so, even have an LED setting. Now, the nice thing is some of the bulbs actually give you the measurement of whiteness in degrees. And I believe that Canon cameras measure stuff in degrees for white balance. So if your light bulb conveniently says how many degrees it is and your camera lets you dial in the degrees, that's a good if, solution. But if you, don't, you know. Usually, but if yeah, I was going to say, you don't come into <laughs> someone's house with a stepladder. <laughs> Take out their bulb, have a good read of the small print and screw it back in. I, I don't think it'd be popular.
0: Yeah. Right. So if we... So, so okay, so I'm not a, I'm I'm walking into a house probably all the, somebody spent a bunch of money on a bunch of LED lights instead of the compact uh, fluorescent or whatever. So now now they have a whole house full of LED. Mm-hmm. Um I'm trying to guess what white balance I should put it on. My eyes are my eyes and my brain are really smart. Everything looks, you know, white to me. So I can't tell what the light bulb is doing just by looking at it. Is there a way that I can figure this out and set my camera right
3: so mark there's this eyedropper in lightroom and aperture <laughs> in, i know how to fix it in post <laughs> you the eyedropper
2: with you.
0: Antonio says i can't be lazy i have to do this in camera i can't do it in post so my question is how the heck do
1: i do that okay there's a way there is a way okay. you can tell your camera that you're about to show it white there's, oh, okay. a, there's a mode where you can manually set the white balance. So that's basically as you're telling the camera, I'm about to show you what white is, and then you hopefully have your gray card with you, stick it into the shot, point the little crosshair over it in the camera, and tell the camera, see that there? That's a neutral color. And then the camera will read the white balance and get it right.
0: So that we come back around to this might be one of those reasons. If it really did matter to me, mm-hmm. and if I really was trying to set it in camera, that might be one of the reasons I'd do it, because, you know, who knows? Maybe they're LED lights, and there's no way of knowing what the what uh, white I- is.
1: I can safely say that the best thing I've bought photography-wise in the last year, not that i bought very much in the last year, but the best thing i bought is the white balance card Antonio recommended when we did Allison's Question all those months ago. And I'm trying to remember the name of it. Was it Bal y- or Y-Bow. something?
2: W-H-I-B-A-L, yeah. Ybal.
1: Gorgeous little thing. And, it and it's not
2: white, by the way. It's a, it's a light, very light gray.
1: It's a, it's it's a neutral fun. gray, which is what you want. It has no, it has no color in it. It's neutral. And it it has worked an absolute treat for me. Like I, I have used it in all sorts of situations, and it has always come in trumps. So I'll
2: they have they have different sizes too. I've got a big one, like a eight by ten size card, and I got one that's a pocket size. And uh, yeah. it's sometimes hard to focus on the pocket size depending on the lens I have. But uh, I will include that in a shot, maybe for um, you know for for post processing fixing.
1: Will uh, you link to that again, Bart? I will. I'll dig it up and I'll stick it into the show notes.
2: And the nice thing about most modern cameras is that they will let you save those um, uh, preset white balances in your camera, so that if you keep coming back to the same place, you don't have to keep resetting your white balance. You can have it set as a preset, so you just dial that uh, preset in, and you're and you're good to go. But um, one of the things I've noticed is that you you but you often come into a place that has different light bulbs. You'll have mm. you'll have window light. You'll have uh, incandescent light, and you then need to choose which light is going to be predominant in your picture, so you have to white balance for the light that you want and an indoor and outdoor mix is always the real problematic one because you can get too much blue in the picture, or you can get too much yellow in the picture so well,
1: th- this actually this, a similar thing is a real problem if you 're shooting HDRs around dusk because you have the golden light of the setting sun or the low sun and you have stuff in shadow. And normally if you're not shooting HDR, the stuff in shadow goes to black or nearly black and any color cast in there is basically imperceptible because it's just gone dark. But you bring HDR into the equation and you've pulled back all of those shadows and brightened them up and made them look natural. Only they're not natural because as soon as you start to crank up the saturation to get that nice setting sun look, all of your shadows turn like luminous blue. And I found that, you know, either you choose a white balance in between and get nothing right, which I decided is not the right answer, or you decide that you're going to let the natural light be correct and then deal with the shadows. And my approach to that has been use a little color adjustments tool in Aperture for as long as we can. Um, Drop it into the shadow and pick up the shade of blue and then desaturate only that blue. It's not a perfect adjustment because a white balance adjustment would probably be nicer. But if you just take the blue cast off, you'll end up with a natural-looking image. So I usually dial it to minus 50% in saturation and minus 25% in brightness. And I find that looks like it does to the eye, because to the naked eye, there is a little bit of blue in there. So don't dial it to zero, but you've got to get so much of it back out or it looks awful.
3: You're saying that's mostly in shadows, right?
1: Right, yes, exactly. It'll be in the shadows, because the, the white balance for shadow is different to the white balance for sunlit. And so you have perfectly exposed shadows and perfectly exposed sunlit, so you have a clash.
3: I was just looking at a picture I took of a butterfly where I got that weird purplish tinge from the. Uh, this is a JPEG from uh, from my iPhone, but I got that weird purplish tin- tinge on the side. And I'm going to try that right now. You guys just keep talking.
1: <laughs> yeah, the, the purple tinge is actually aberration, and there is actually a special adjustment in aperture to, to get that fixed. Really, but The Lightroom, the one from the better. sun, no, the one shut in Lightroom is better. <laughs> shut up, Mark. way, well, no, there's a brick called chromatic aberration and it will let you give a slider, and it will put the colors back into register. Basically, the colors are slightly out of register at the edges. There's there's green fringes, too, but they're not as obvious. Actually, I think the the purple thing is purple fringing, not necessarily
2: chromatic aberration. I think it might be from when the pixels get overheated along a hot edge, which is slightly different than aberration, which comes from the lens itself. The mm. fring, the purple fringing or the blooming can mm. be uh, an issue with the sensor.
1: You can fix the blooming with a with color dropper, though, because I have done that on a few HDRs where it's come out really horribly. Yeah. You
2: have to see and the picture can... to to just see what exactly it is.
1: I actually okay. have, because I found it very hard to get the eyedropper perfectly on the fringe. I actually have a photograph that I keep in my Aperture Library in a folder called 000 underscore uh, oh, something important. I can't remember what it is, 000 anyway at the start of it, so it's always at the top. And it is just that a pixel of that shade of purple that you get on those fringes zoomed out to be like 100%. So it's massive. <laughs> like I just drop my eyedropper in, lift the adjustment, and then paste it onto whatever has the bloody fringe I can't get rid of. Yeah,
3: I got to say, guys, I'm not kidding. I think it's a lot easier to just use the eyedropper when you get home than it is to drag around a, a card and take pictures of it and figure out okay, how to teach without, your camera.
1: But if there's nothing to put the eyedropper on, that's where the card comes in.
3: Oh, but it's almost right. always uh-huh. no, the eyedropper can be on flesh. No, but if you're so you can grab some it, part of somebody's face, a
2: landscape scene. There is no natural white in the scene. Most likely, I mean, I there's a, is
3: There's a cloud?
2: Well, I'm just saying, if there's no clouds, so everywhere not always, but not here. Always. And, and, Everywhere but here, there's clouds and white. And clouds are not also a good thing necessarily to white balance against. They're often
3: quite blue. Close.
2: they are quite close. blue. And actually, you also don't want to use a piece of paper from uh, like a, a Xerox paper, um, photocopy paper, because a lot of papers that you use for printers have uh, artificial whiteners in them, and um, they will actually give off a bit of a color that your camera is sensitive to, um, but your eye is.
1: It's UV or something that they're actually. Yeah, Yeah.
2: so it's not always – white paper is not a good thing. Little white balance cards are great because you can take one picture of it at the beginning of your shoot and you don't have to – you can either preset your camera to it or you can keep that for later when you get home and you want to tweak it in Lightroom or Aperture and then you use that as your your, um, reference.
3: I I could see going that far. One second. To it, it, it's, it. Out Allison... to, it's just you're taking a picture of white so that you're gray, so that you know what gray looks like. So you have I, a gray, get gray at the scene, yeah, yeah.
2: I mean, I if got... you're taking a picture of a sidewalk, if you're in, like, I, you know, I'm in New York City, so I've got streets here, and I know the sidewalks are gray, so I don't necessarily need to do that. Those are my white balance cards, or, or the gray <laughs> the side. The whole
1: city cards. is a white balance card. Right. One. <laughs> but <laughs> no, it, it, it depends a lot on the situation, Allison, because I know that the Nikons are terrible at macros of yellow things. It seems that yellow and green make make Nikon sad. And so if I want to get a good shot of of something small and yellow, I have to use a white balance card because the Nikon will not get there. It's, okay. I, I don't know why. it's pathologically hates yellow. It's really and Nikons
2: also have a very tough time with incandescence. Very, very hard. If I go into a room that are lit by incandescence, but either, either regular tungsten bulbs or fluorescent bulbs, and not so much the LEDs, it's doing better with that. It has a lousy time, and I just have to dial in the number myself. I have to actually go – I can't remember what it is. I go down to 2,500 degrees or 2,700 degrees, and, and I get a much better white balance. But the camera itself on automatic cannot, cannot manage
1: it. And the other thing to say is the depending on the style of post-processing you like, this may be more or less important. So if you, look, if you like the sort of the flat, desaturated color look, well, if you desaturate a color that's a little bit off, it actually gets a little bit less far off. And so actually it gets a little bit better just by your style. But I'm very fond of punchy colors. And if you amplify a wrong color, you really ruin a shot. So if you're going to go for that punchy look, you have to put in the effort to get that white balance right or it's going to look awful. And HDR so makes
3: it twice as bad. We didn't do anything in teaching people how to use their cameras to do this in this. Okay, subject, well, right? my,
1: my technique, for what it's worth, is put the camera in auto white balance unless it really ties its panties in a bunch. And if it really, it, it basically, I mean, the joy of digital is we don't have to wait till the it's developed, right? We can look on the back. And so, if it looks okay on the back, it's within correction range using the eyedropper and post processing if you're shooting raw. So I will say leave it on auto unless it looks awful. And if it looks awful, I will dial in the daylight or the light bulb or whatever is appropriate. And if, if I know that I care about this, I will have my Y-Ball card in my pocket and I will take one picture of the Y-Ball card and I know I'll get it all later. So that, that's my approach. Is auto is fine 99% of the time, but be, be wary of it, be, be cognizant of it and keep an eye on the back of your camera so that you're aware of when the auto has just lost a run of itself and then take action.
2: Okay. I couldn't add anything to that. That's perfect.
1: And thankfully the little dumb computers are becoming slightly less dumb all the time. And the, the idea of
2: sorry, the idea of like doing it while you're shooting and understanding it is kind of what you were talking about before Allison. is like you you know you're learning these things like you walk in a place and you say okay, you know, part of what Tom and I do when we do switch manuals like you walk in and you you observe what's going on and then you know how to take control of your camera. So like I walk in and I'm like, well, you know, it's a it's a theater, so it's probably incandescent bulbs, so I'm going to try to start, you know, learning how to shoot with a tungsten white balance and so you begin to you know rather than just letting the camera do everything for you and figure it out it's it's good to know these things while you're on set and shooting it's, you know if you're shooting raw like I said you can always fix it later which is always a nice backup too because I've shot stuff when I've totally had the white balance off and I'm like oh my god and I didn't even realize it because <laughs> I wasn't looking at the back of my camera after I shot I only you know, realized after I shot but was like okay well I shot raw and I can fix it later But to me, it felt like a mistake um, that I made a boo-boo, and you know I did have that backup to to be able to fix it. So,
1: cool. Sorry, I am a man. I can't multitask. I'm sorry.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I I guess the only the the thing that I would say there, Allison, too, is that. Knowing that you can make this adjustment in your camera uh particularly if you're shooting jpeg it would be it's nice to know if you look down at the camera and everything's blue or everything's orange or whatever um you know double check that that didn't that that's not set in the wrong place because it's gonna it's gonna default to whatever you had it set for last so if you were uh if you had it not set in auto but you had it set for the sun and then you go inside and you're shooting an incandescent and then everything comes out all colored wrong and you look on the back of the camera and you can't figure out what's going wrong check your white balance check the setting on your camera so maybe that's the other little piece of advice
1: and it's actually mark it's because of that fact that i kept on doing that that i that i adopted the mode of leave it in auto until it breaks Because I used to say, well, I know better because I'm a smart human and my camera's a silly camera. And I used to, every day, I'd look outside and go, hmm, is that a cloud or a sun? Ooh, I think it's a sun today. And I would just forget about it the next day. And then I would end up with absolute garbage for 40 shots. So auto, auto wins just because I'm silly. Anyway, I'm going to move us on. So the next thing I just want to wrap up with, we're going on for nearly an hour, but not quite, is just that there are some special exposure modes your camera has that you may find useful in certain situations and so there's two of them i want to talk about but the first one i want to mention is something called bracketing which your camera may or may not support but it's worth checking the manual so that you know whether or not it does and well there's lots of uses for bracketing but basically what bracketing does is it means that your camera will automatically take not a photo at the exact exposure, but will, through various different mechanisms, depending on the make and model of camera, actually take a cluster of photographs. So one on the exposure of the camera thinks, one a bit darker, one a bit brighter. And there, there's a couple of uses for that. Um, also, really, 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 really read the manual here, because if you turn on bracketing and don't understand how it works on your camera, you're going to come home with some awful photographs. <laughs> uh, in Nikon land, the way it works is that if you have it set to do three-shot bracket, You fire once it will take in the middle, you fire again, it'll overexpose, you fire again, it'll underexpose. Those last two might be the other way around. But the thing is, if you only take two pictures and then move on to the next subject, you are going to tie yourself into knots. Because the next time you fire the shutter, it's still thinking about the last set of brackets. And so you have to, if you're shooting three brackets with Nikon, you have to click the shutter three times. And that may be different. I mean, I would love a mode where I click the shutter once and the camera goes click, 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 click. But I haven't found out how to make it do that yet. But other makes and models may behave better. Anyone have any experience with bracketing? I believe actually Canon make you pay for like really expensive models to get bracketing. Well, I I mean I use it. Uh, I tend
0: to use it when I know I'm gonna probably want to do HDR, so that I'm so that I automatically get the three exposures that I want. Um, I'm hearing people give advice that you should bracket all the time because that way you, you know, you you set up your camera, you get the composition, and you aren't, don't necessarily have to worry about the exposure when you you bracket around where where it is. So that when you get home, you can find one that's going to work. But I I use it mostly for uh, HDR, and I have one of my uh, one of the buttons I can program. I have it set the way that I would normally bracket um, a good starting point. So. Yeah, I use Mark, it, but... I, yeah. Sorry. No, go ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead.
2: No, I was going to agree with you about the HDR photography because it's sort of required. You need to create several exposures. Although, I think if you're shooting RAW, the bracketing is becoming... The, the RAW files are getting better and better um, in, in their latitude and dynamic range, and so I think bracketing for RAW pictures is probably going to be one of those things that will sort of be redundant over time. Like I wouldn't do it if you're it doing JPEG. How
1: extreme, I think, Antonio. Because it does I would depend. Not extreme. Yeah. There's no point in like you can choose how far apart to bracket on most cameras.
2: No, I I agree. I think, but I, I there's certainly again considering I've been over time, I've seen my digital cameras improve over mm. time, and the, and the raw files, the sensors have improved, so that it might be at some point where you know you take one shot and you've got a huge dynamic range and you won't need exposure bracketing anymore. Um, right now, great, sure. The one thing I want to take issue with, and I want, like, yeah, it's the same thing as with motor drives and, you know, exposure bracketing. It's like, shoot enough pictures and you'll get something that works. And, <laughs> <laughs> like, I am I am very not for people to say, well, I'm going to take five exposures because I don't know what the right exposure is. Like, get it right when you're out there the first time. Understand You're light. And if you're not really sure, okay, I can understand doing exposure bracketing, but Bart, you'll end up with that that same kind of thing. You've set up for three brackets, and Mm -hmm. you take two, and then that next shot is not right, and then you're in a world of pain because every shot from then on is not the exposure
1: you want. So... Um, and, and probably a world of confusion because you're going to be looking down at the back of the camera. Right. Going, what? 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 Yes.
2: Right. And, yeah. you, and inevitably, you're going to forget because exposure bracketing is one of those menu items that's hidden someplace and you may not see it that your camera is doing it. So, but um, I'm, I'm all sort of not against doing it just because, like, learn your exposures. Like, we're out here to, you know, you're not randomly pointing the camera. And hoping that you get it, you know, a good picture. We're here to learn how to take pictures, and so maybe while you're learning exposures and metering, uh, exposure bracketing is good for that. But I kind of say, you know, I try to steer my students away from that as much as possible, and say, like, understand the light, you know, figure out what your exposure is, and and take the shot. And don't do it. Don't rely too much on the. Uh, um,
1: yeah, I only That's ever just, use it for HDR. When, when I'm, just I say I know, you know, let's say it's, it, it, I know I'm in a high uh, dynamic range situation. I know I'm going to want to HDR these and I know I'm going to want as little as possible time between the exposures because it, there's a slight breeze or something and the clouds are moving a little more than I'd like. That's the only time I ever use a bracketing mode because I, would, I, I don't use it as a sort of the, the, the spray and pray approach.
3: Yeah. So and, uh, at the beginning Bart, you said that uh you thought that the canons uh you had to get a higher end camera to get the bracketing um in my little $700 uh Olympus camera <laughs> this is just really going to sound like sound like Stephen gets right now but I went <laughs> into bracketing. I have a choice of AE bracketing, I assume that's uh, exposure, mm-hmm. uh-huh. WB bracketing, that's WB, White FL lights. bracketing,
1: focus bracketing.
3: Okay. ISO bracketing, art bracketing. What's
1: art now, bracketing? Hang go. on, what's an art and how do you bracket art, it?
3: Art is oh, probably,
2: no. art is probably um, I have it on my Fuji, where you can do three different special effects. So oh. you want to do, you know, you can do black and white and a color and a, uh, something else.
3: Yeah, I've That got might it. be fun. But let's go down into each one of these, shall we? <laughs> well,
1: yeah, because actually you're right. Because on a DSLR, you only have usually one of those, which is the AE bracketing.
3: Right. So let's go into AE bracketing. I have a choice within there. Let's see, wait a minute, what happened? Ah, ah there it is. Okay, inside AE backening, I can be off 2F 0.3 EV, 2F 0.7 EV, 2F 1.0 EV, 3F, oh, this goes on and on. There's three, three, five, seven, two, three, five, seven F with one, three, or seven EVs next to it.
1: All right, so it's <laughs> how many steps and how big a step.
3: Right. Each EV
2: is a is a step of exposure value, uh, and, okay. and F is the amount of frames it will take, and it's usually an odd ah.
3: number. Of
1: frames. Generally, okay, not so like un- three
3: frames plus minus one EV. Got it. Yeah. Okay, yeah. then I got WB bracket. So now, <laughs> right, so you're this trying different s- white
1: balances to try hit the right white balance by spraying around oh. with the out of gases.
2: Yeah,
3: and can I yeah. just add?
2: Can I just quickly add? Usually, when you have the exposure um, bracketing, you can mm-hmm. do that with RAW. But on a lot of these cameras, all these other things, you can't do bracketing with raw files. So a white balance bracket, you'll only be able to do when you're shooting
3: JPEGs. But exposure... Interesting. uh, Yeah. So So how does it describe
1: the the white balance bracket? I'm curious.
3: I'm just going to do this for the comedy now. Now when I go into white balance bracket, I've got two flip down menus. One on the left, one on the right. The one on the left can be uh, set to off. 3F two-step, 3F four-step, 3F six-step are off, and it's got an A-B above it. On the right, I've got G-M, and again, 3F two-step, 3F four-step, 3F six-step.
1: <laughs> I don't know what that means. Green,
2: wait, say the letters again. Green, magenta. G-M, T-M and dash M is, is uh, M sounds like tint magenta. G. 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 Oh, green, magenta, tint, and... AB. And, huh? What was that? A-B. No, A-B. Is it blue, amber, amber, and blue?
3: Wow. Amber,
2: those okay. are, yeah, because you have, you have a tint and then you have a. Okay. Basically, you have two tints and white balance. So you have an, and they're opposite color, well, opposite. But amber, blue would be, um, amber would be more of a uh, tungsten white balance. Blue would be more of a daylight white balance. Actually, it's vice versa. And tint is magenta and green. And you have those same controls in Lightroom, by the way. So when you go to adjust white balance, you have those sliders that yeah. give you two different tints. So that's what they're – those are – Aperture has it too. Yeah, every, <laughs> when you set a custom white balance in a camera, you can actually change the, the, the tint of the white balance. So you can say basically I want a daylight white balance, but I'm like, ah, you know what? It's still a little too blue outside, so I can add a little bit yellow – um, and maybe some magenta, and you have these little sliders in the camera menu that you can you can adjust. I'm so a that's what these are. Before
3: I do that, <laughs> yes,
2: yeah. But again, those are those would be mostly for baked baked in JPEGs. So if you're gonna if you're for some reason okay. some people have to shoot JPEGs, and you know, like you're sending them out, and you have to wire them out immediately, and um, that kind of white balance bracket would only work for mm. uh, JPEGs.
1: So you're basically well, I, you're exchanging memory card space for giving your JPEG more range. So that it's you know it's baking three times in the hope that ooh, one of the recipes is correct.
2: Ooh, 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 sorry, I have to add mm-hmm. one thing. Uh, exposure generally with exposure bracketing, you are taking separate pictures. Mm-hmm. So if you take a three uh, bracket exposure um, with exposure bracketing, you'll take three physical separate pictures. Right. But um, white balance and these art things. Or often they're taking one picture and processing it three times.
1: That makes the sense. Cameras. Oh, interesting. Although yeah. focusing, I'm imagining that's also three separate pictures. Well,
3: I wanted the focusing, to you, probably, What yeah. on earth? what on earth does this mean? And, and I am not going to make the audience listen to every <laughs> single menu in my camera. Mm-hmm. But focusing, again, I have 3F plus 3EV plus 7EV or plus 1EV. I what don't is, get why you'd have... And off. Why not, would you have EVs and... That's all because... Focus
0: no because you so you'd be you can that's uh, exposure bracketing but you can move the start point up so you can do two things you're you're doing exposure compensation so let's say you you move it up plus 2 cuz you know you want it brighter and then it brackets either side of that so No no
3: no we're no. not in the AE1 oh. we're in FLBKT FL I'm not convinced Flash that is focus
1: no, it must be flash. Oh, it's a flash bracket. Oh, uh, there you go. Uh, there you go. Okay, good.
3: Right. Good. So, it's, okay, it's it's we should we should leave gonna, these menus. We're not going to do any of this. Oh, I was going to okay, say you, no, you can the,
1: also the, bracket focus if you're not sure. If you're in manual focus and you're trying to do a macro and you're not quite sure, you can twist, press, twist, press, twist, press. That's bracketing focus too. But right? that's
2: manual bracketing. Yeah. But the the flash bracketing is going to change the power of your flash.
3: Yeah. And so it yeah. is going to take. Yeah, that's that also going to
2: take three separate pictures. Obviously yeah, that actually makes sense. I like that. i the, the
1: crap time. out of someone three times.
2: Right. But if you're, you know, I'm... photographing things that are moving, it's kind of pointless because by the time they get to the third shot, the image has changed because it's fired the right. flash three times. So, yeah, yeah. The, a lot of cameras have flash bracketing too. And that's for the built-in flash. I'm not sure if it's for external flashes that you attach to the top of the camera. Yeah. My guess is if it was a manufactured built flash, that would work. But if it was a third-party flash, you probably you couldn't do flash bracketing with an external flash.
1: Just to I didn't make it want, more
2: complex,
0: I didn't want us to move away from here thinking, having people think that if they have a Canon camera, I don't that this bracketing topic only applies if they have an expensive camera. I'm not sure that that's correct. My older Canon DSLR had bracketing. The current one I have is has bracketing, and it's not a ultra high end uh, unit. It the difference, Mark. Yeah, when I, when I yeah.
1: was when I was buying my early Nikon's, it was, it was one of the defining differences that well, nothing I could afford from Canon had bracketing. Yeah.
0: And one of the differences, too, that I think still exists is that Canon does limit you to three exposure bracketing. So you have oh. you have one, one above, one below, and one in the middle. And I think doesn't Nikon give you five as a choice?
2: Or
1: seven as a choice,
2: yeah. yeah. I think my, so my, I, my Nikon D2X had up to nine. What? Yes. Yeah. So, it was so seven the, or nine. It was something insane. It was it a... yeah.
0: so, so it made, it. It, if this is an important factor for you, certainly that you know that the fact that it does less bracketing might be a big deal. But if you have a Canon or if you shoot Canon, you pr- you probably have bracketing. So I can, can I don't, you change
1: I, the size of the step mark? Yes, I okay, can, well, that's the important I, thing, right? Because I think if you're shooting RAW and you can make that step be like two or three EV. Oh yeah. Then three brackets so, is a lot of coverage.
0: So you can go. Uh, you the step can be one, two, or three. And you can also what I was describing to Allison. You can you can have the starting point either be plus or minus eight. Oh,
1: be, interesting.
0: So I can so it it defaults to zero. Mm-hmm. That the middle the middle point is zero, but I can do exposure uh, compensation for my starting point, and I can move my starting point all the way out to, uh, to five, and then that makes my highest bracket plus eight. Does that make sense? Right,
1: yes. And your lowest bracket plus three.
0: My actually, yeah, exactly. Or plus two, whatever way the math yeah. works. Anyway, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so you have that range, but you only have three exposures.
1: Okay. Cool. Well, that's actually sufficient, I think, for certainly for HDR work, unless you're standing in the mouth of a cave looking at a sunset. I think so. In I which case, you have, you know, you're going to have a hard time. Um, Before we wrap up, the one last mode I want to mention that I think everyone should figure out whether their camera has it and how to get to it is bulb mode, which is where you basically, when you're in bulb mode, you hit the shutter button once and the shutter opens, and then it stays open until you either release the button, depending on the make and model of the camera, or press the button a second time. And this basically gives you manual control of the exposure and an infinite length of exposure. And this is what you need if you're going to have fun at night with your camera.
2: Bonus points if you can tell them, if anybody can say where the word bulb comes from, why it's called bulb mode. Because
3: you squeezed a little bulb, didn't you, to, to open the shutter and close it? Wasn't it on the? I remember, I remember having a shutter release thing that I squeezed. Yeah,
2: yeah. and Am the I bulb right? was. Yeah, and it was an air. It was the air from the bulb. Yeah. would trigger the uh, shutter, so you wouldn't get any motion from it. You wouldn't get a, a vibration. Oh, so darn it's very it! Gentle. Though I just
3: won the. I just won the old
1: person award, though, didn't I? (laughs) So so why is the icon from mine got a filament? (laughs) Huh? I'm pretty sure I've seen bulb mode icons where there's a clear, obvious filament inside the quote-unquote bulb. Because youngster did that. Obviously, someone lost track of the
3: origins of the phrase.
2: (laughs) It's funny that you 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 asked that,
3: though. I haven't thought about that in forever. I mean, that has to have been on, like, my Minolta X700. That has to be way back. Yeah, but as yeah. soon as you said it, I felt myself squeezing that little bulb. Yep, yep, cool. <laughs> um, I, I, so usually, a lot of cameras to get the
1: bulb mode, you put the camera into manual ex, into manual exposure, and you just dial dial the exposure down as far as it goes. So, you know, you go like to thirty seconds. Maybe you'll get to a minute, and then you click one more click at whatever the bottom of the scale is. You usually go straight to B then. And then you're in bulb mode. And bulb mode will work with your remote control. On Well, it certainly does in the Nikon world, which means that if you want to have no camera shake, you set it up in a tripod, you frame it all the way you want, you fire your remote once, the shutter opens. You wait whatever amount of time it is you want to wait. You fire again, the shutter closes. And so you can have your 10-minute exposures and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, so you might think your camera will only let you expose for 30 seconds, but if it has a bulb mode, the sky's the limit.
3: Uh, so I'm no, the, trying to find uh,
0: mine. It goes to 30 seconds. I know I have bulb mode, but I don't know how to get to get there.
3: Oh, I have a mode beyond two modes beyond bulb mode, and I'm not going to describe them perfectly well here. But oh. one of them is is is. Uh, and Bart, I showed you a, a link about this. Um, mm. There's one called live composite, uh, but there's another one where basically you tell it I'm, I want to watch what's happening on screen. So it's sort of like bulb, but you can stop it when you see what you like.
1: Because one of the problems nice. I had with bulb
3: was I, I set it for a second. Oh, I don't know. Two seconds. Oh, it still looks stupid. Five seconds. 60 seconds. Well, that wasn't it. This lets you watch and you can see like the trails of a car going by, that kind of thing. That is the single coolest thing,
1: like I say my I have a friend who likes to show me all the cool stuff his Olympus can do that my Nikon can't, and that wins the cookie hands down. That is just you know for someone like me who likes shooting at night, being able to just watch those star trails just build in or watch the exposure on the on your light painting come together. oh, I've painted a bit too much there, I haven't painted enough there. Watching that in real time is just that's just a bee's knees. that is such a cool feature. <laughs>
3: Hey Mark, I couldn't find mine either. Uh, I went it went down to sixteen stopped. You have to be mine you have to be in manual mode. So there's live bulb, live time, and live composite. There, or wait. Bulb, live time, and live composite. Live composite uh, that's right. Uh, so live time is just I'm gonna show you live what's going on and you keep the shutter open as long as you want, and you hit your, your remote a second time and it and stops. Mm-hmm. Uh, live composite only takes in light from stuff that's changing. So it's creating a composite photo. So like, let's say you have a, uh, a lamp in the picture, and you've got stars moving, mm. it'll, it'll expose what's going on with the, the lamp, the, the, the street lamp in the picture. And then it goes, okay, I've got that. But from now on, I'm only going to take the changing light beyond that, because I've exposed that enough. So you can get like one of Bart's famous castles lit up with a a flashlight or torch, as he would say, and then it'll get that. Okay, good. I've got that lit up. Now it's going to only capture the the movement of the stars. I don't know how it does that as magic.
1: That's some voodoo there. So I've got that's doing real post processing, only not post.
0: Yeah, and I found mine. So I'm using. So I have my Canon 60D, and it's actually not part of. So I put it in manual mode and changed the shutter time, looking for bulb mode, and it and it would only go as far as 30 seconds. But then I looked, and it's actually on the dial. So where you might have program mode, uh, shutter priority, oh. aperture priority, manual, and then the next one on the knob is. A great big B, and it says, and when I and when I look over at the LED uh, screen, it says bulb. Interesting. So it's 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 wow. it's its own spot on the dial on the control dial. Cool. So, I do wish more stuff was now, like I, that. Now you know how It's on the dial. It's on.
2: Oh yeah. I'm sorry. Is that what you're what saying, that? Allison? You wish it was more on the.
3: Yeah, Um, I know. I know the new retro thing with cameras is to put stuff on the outside. And you know, as I might have mentioned, there's 476 different menus on this camera, and I can't remember where anything is. And I would, a a few of these things, I sure would like to have on the outside.
2: Yeah, that's what Fuji has done really well, I think, with their new X cameras. um, Is that I was just thinking about this the other day. Is like, as I'm walking and I've got this X100T wrapped around my neck, with just my fingers and not even looking down, I can feel where the dials are, and I can. I can go into these manual modes uh, and change my shutter speed and change my aperture without having to go into any menu, and it it just gives me a a lot more flexibility. So having all that stuff on the outside of the camera, I'm glad they're bringing that back, Um, and not you know, there's still a lot of stuff tucked in the menus, and you know, and that's I'm sorry, but go ahead.
0: No, I was just going to say that I'm I'm actually glad to hear that too cuz that's been one of one of the things that's made me sort of avoid thinking about the the uh mirrorless is that it seems like everything is on the on the LED and it's a lot of the menus and you don't have the buttons and I hate menu driven stuff cuz I never drill down. I want it on my I want to be able to do it really quickly in the field. But
2: I really
1: like the idea yeah. of that you're just dialing the exposure back and when you go beyond what the camera can do it jumps to bulb. I, just, I, I find that very intuitive in the Nikons. It's just, you know, okay, after 30 seconds comes whatever you want. I don't know, it makes sense to me. Anywho, thank you very much folks, that's been a really good discussion and I think we've gone slightly over our technical target of an hour, but I don't care, it was a good show. Uh, Why does that keep happening when I'm on shows? It's inexplicable. <laughs> I was going to say, that when I'm on your show, it happens too. So,
3: maybe. Uh, There you
1: go. Um, before we finish up, just to say that my plan, provisionally anyway, is that the next show would be a question and answer show. Um, I have two questions in the bank already, one from Alison, which is getting a lot of upvotes in the Google Plus community, so that one's top of the list. Uh, but I have some other questions in the bank as well. So if anyone has any questions they'd like to send in, now is a perfect time. Uh, you can either post them in the Google Plus community, or you can go to the Let's Talk website and click on, there's a, there's a link there to submit your questions. Or you can go straight to the shortcut link, let's-talk.ie forward slash photo for photo question. So if you have any questions now is, as I say, the perfect time. Now, while you happen to be over there on let's-talk.ie, you'll also notice there's two giant big blue buttons to support the show I would be very grateful if a few people would push in a few of those buttons from time to time. It uh, very much helps. So there's, there's sort of two ways you can go about it, two different approaches. There's the plain old, very easy to understand PayPal approach. You click the PayPal button, you type in an amount of dollars or euro. I'm not sure which it'll ask you. And then you click go, and that will just go to me, and that's the end of that. Very straightforward, very easy to do. And assuming the amount is greater than about two $2, it's actually worthwhile. The problem with small amounts is that PayPal take the same size cut no matter what you donate. Well, ish. It varies a bit. But so if you try to donate a dollar, like PayPal will take like 60 cent. Whereas if you donate $10, PayPal will take like 80 cent. And, you know, it, it makes a very big difference that way. So it's because actually it's so hard to give a small amount of money in an efficient way that I was very interested in Patreon. And the idea with Patreon is that you become sort of a patron of the show and you pledge that for every show I put out, you will donate X amount to the show and X can be a small number without it being sort of, you know, PayPal getting all the money. And so if you click on the second button, you can sort of sign up to to be a patron and choose your amount. And it really is up to you and it will be an efficient way to give a small amount. So, uh, you know, and both are very useful. So whatever you'd like to do, it's all very much appreciated. As I say, the, the, the aim here is not for this to be a money-making scheme. It's, you know, I just want to break even at some stage. And although we're getting closer, we are not there. Um, but, you know, thank you to everyone who does support the show. It, it, it does make a big difference.
3: I'm a huge believer in this model. And like I mentioned up front, one of the things that can help motivate you, you obviously do this because you love doing it, but you know that you've made a commitment to these people to get this thing right. done. And if, if Bart were to miss a show, you don't give him that money. So it's kind, of a, it's kind of a neat model that I think really really works for the podcasting community. I think it's perfect for this. And by the way, um, I, shoot, I'm going to forget who it was. Somebody signed up for your Patreon over here because they like what you do in Security Light and, and Chit Chat Across the Pond on my show. So here's a way if you guys are – we should mention it more on the NoSilicast. But there, here's a way to get money to Bart for what he does on my show because I don't pay him nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Thank
1: you, Alison. Um, actually, thank you, Alison, for multiple reasons. So time to thank the panel. Uh, you guys are always great to give of your time freely and add interesting cool stuff for the listeners. So uh, I always try to do a reverse order, but I always forget the order. But I think Alison was last, so Alison shall be first. Alison, do you want to tell people where they can listen to you
3: normally? If I haven't pimped it enough right there, Alison Sheridan of the NosillaCast podcast, a, a technology geek podcast with an ever-so-slight Macintosh bias where we can talk about everything in tech uh, up to and including photography when we're in the mood. You can find that at podfeet.com and you can find me on Twitter at podfeet. Excellent. Uh, I think Mark is next. Mark, where, where do you hang out on the internets?
0: Um my photography is at twinlakesimages.com uh also post uh, a calendar there of where i'm doing exhibits uh also do a little bit of blogging over there and uh i'm switcher mark on the twitters
1: cool and antonio
2: you can find me everywhere
1: <laughs> but, everywhere uh, okay everywhere you're not behind me that's terrible. <laughs> yeah. Um,
2: mainly you could find me on Twitter at, amrosario. Uh, a M Rosario. I spend a lot of time there and uh, I'm a M Rosario pretty much everywhere. Flickr and stuff like that. But, um, also as part of switch to manual, me and, uh, Tom Martinez, who's been on the show a couple times, we, uh, try to teach people how to use the manual part of their camera. Um, so switch to manual.com and we've started our podcast, uh, actually late last year when we're in episode 11 this switched manual street shots podcast you can find us on uh, iTunes and on our website
1: you you guys publish a lot more than once a month so you're going to overtake this show in episode yeah we just quickly. but we like to do
2: it for like 20 minutes 20 25 minutes um, yeah. we 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 don't want to exhaust the subject we talk about photography it's like two new york guys we both come from slightly different backgrounds about photography so uh I think it's a lot
3: different from this show, though. I, it's very complimentary. I like having both. Yeah, because you, you, like, you know, this show with the panel is different every
1: month, which is a feature, not a bug. I mean, that is, <laughs> right? that, that is what makes yeah. part yeah. of what makes the show. But you guys have the exact opposite model where the two of you are real friends in the actual physical world and you guys shoot together and you guys do switch the manual together. So that rapport is actually a great value in your podcast and it comes across really well
2: thanks yeah and and because of our we have vastly different backgrounds and uh it it's a nice mix you know we're, we we approach the subject of photography very similarly in some respects and very differently too so and we're just going to start having guests on soon we we've Ooh. got a couple of, we've got a couple of photographers we want to talk to we're probably going to do them over the course of two shows cuz i think we can talk for a very long time but uh one photographer who um, photographed a lot of the uh, Occupy um, protests in uh, in New York and took a lot of great portraits. So I think he might be our first guest. I don't know, but i
1: uh, teasing us now.
2: I'm uh, teasing because I don't know if we, I don't know when we'll be able to do it. But uh, I know Allison. I want you on, and I, I want all you yay. guys. On. Actually, say,
1: if you want to talk about trains sometime, I, I know a guy. <laughs>
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm looking at I'm looking at your pictures on my screen, and uh, yes, we want to talk to all of you. So that would that's that's on the that's on the agenda. Cool. So, that's an anyway, interesting. Anyway, dot com and uh, Street Shots Podcast.
1: Excellent. Okay. Thank well, you for
2: the thank you for the plug. By the okay, way,
1: my <laughs> pleasure. Uh, I've been your host Bart Bouchert, so You can find me at bartb.ie dot ie. And until next time, happy snapping.
0: Listening to another great podcast in the Stoplight Network.
3: Are you a geek? I guess so. What do you mean you guess so? Prove your geek, Red. I don't
1: need to prove myself to you. I'm the new host of the geekiest show ever. We will see about that. Don't you just hate it when droids think they have all the control and don't know their role? You know, they forget that we can turn the power off. Oh no, you can't. Oh yes, I can. Don't, please. I'll be good. That's better. Nothing worse than artificial intelligence being, well, unintelligent. Head across to iTunes and subscribe to the Geekiest Show Ever podcast, the only show truly dedicated to geekery.